Mr. Backhunting, Vero Precalo. Welcome to the Mastering Embedded Systems Podcast, Episode 19. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Mastering Embedded Systems Podcast. I'm Georg Loder, and this is the podcast about realizing and managing your projects within the embedded systems realm. I tell you the know-how and teach you the ways to succeed and overcome your daily obstacles and problems in project work. Today's episode is about bug hunting. It has become a regular topic in this podcast. There are tons of different persons out there using their own approaches to handle bugs. All of them do have different attitudes and different experiences. It would be of interest for all of us to get more familiar with our particular approaches and further details we can tell us. Therefore, within today's episode, I wanted to welcome Bero Bercalo. Bero and myself become acquainted after release 2, that was the inner world of bugs, how to become a successful bug hunter. We've had a long mail discussion about debugging, we started to understand each other and detected our differences. But most important, Bero's very interesting debugging tool made me curious. Bero is a wholehearted hardware and software engineer with a 35 years plus of experience. We both have learned software from the hardware's perspective. At these early days, developing software was also always a hardware thing. That led both of us getting very close to nowadays embedded systems. Bero is working as a freelance engineer. He has focused himself on very challenging, stuck problems with embedded systems. Originally from Croatia, he is now living in Belgium, solving the unsolvable problems in the area of embedded and real-time systems. And he is following the very demanding but nevertheless successful fixed price, no cure, no pay formula. He is one of my very first listeners, not directly related to me or my regular buddies. At that early time, we were strangers to each other. However, using our experience, technical understanding and interest into embedded systems as a common vehicle, we get closer step by step. As more as we discussed and as more I got familiar with Bero, my impression gets more precise and more clearer. For me, Bero is Mr. Backhunting in person. Within this episode, I have had the pleasure to talk with Bero about many details of debugging. We'll discuss his particular approach and his individual understanding of debugging. You will get acquainted with a very elaborated engineer who has gone through a lot of storms and bad weather. Bero has a lot to say and I've taken the opportunity to forward it to you while you enjoy and participate in his experience and his passion in mastering embedded systems. Stay tuned and be inspired. Bero, could you please give our audience a short overview what you are doing and why you are doing it? Currently, I'm enjoying uh, to help people that are stuck and in uh, debugging embedded problems, hardware-related problems, and uh, uh, and that's why I uh, that's why I get up in the morning. It's uh, it's interesting helping people with problems that others have given up. I remember you were one of the first ones who jumped into the episode number two of my podcast about how to become a successful bug hunter. And you were the one who gave a really great 
um, great contribution to that topic. So from your perspective, uh, why do we need this kind of debugging at all? Uh, in order to, uh, to fix a problem, you first have to understand it. And in order to understand the problem, you must first see what is going on in the good case, what is going on in the bad case. Uh, electronic engineers have all kind of uh, 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 devices around them. They have oscilloscopes, uh, logic state analyzers, probes, whatever. Firmware engineers have very little. And long time ago, when, uh, when I was young, we used in-circuit emulators to debug problems. Uh, today, that's uh, almost impossible because for most chips uh, that we are dealing with in the embedded world today, uh, all devices are embedded, so you don't see anything at the outside. That's one point. The other point, you want to see how the system operates in a live situation. You cannot place breakpoints like uh, uh, other, let's say, disciplines in the software area can do and see and investigate variables and so on because then you are changing the experiment. So uh, I have uh, spent time in making things that can observe a system that is working without interfering with it. And uh, the technique is very simple. You just take, uh, I call it binary traces on the target. You sacrifice a portion of memory for it. It costs you uh, something in between 256 bytes to... Uh, to uh, tens of megabytes if you have them. The more you have, the faster you will reach your uh, your problem. Uh, and uh, do all the analysis post-factum after the system did something that you don't expect. You do that afterwards on a host system where you can reproduce what is going on, look into code what is going on, in most cases, you will not find the problem in the first attempt because you will trace too much or too little or a combination of the two usually. So you will have to do several iterations, but at least these iterations are guided by the insight you gained in the previous iteration. So in a couple of iterations, you can pinpoint and see how the system goes into the wrong state or behaves badly. And once you understand how it gets there, you have two things that uh, as a result of it. First thing is you will understand how it went wrong, but almost as important is that you will be able to, after you fix or you think you have fixed the problem, to see the difference in behavior and where, and if it will go the different, follow a different path, uh, at the place you thought it should do so. Because very often I've seen people that, uh, say, okay, I fixed the problem. And when you ask them, how did you fix it? I don't know. 
I just changed something there, and the problem has yeah. gone. Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know. Yeah, very often. Yeah, and uh, uh, I want to get into up to the let's say the root cause, because then I'm I want first to understand the problem, how it could be that it went wrong, because otherwise you will fix some symptoms. And someone will find the root cause maybe or do another change somewhere else and it will avoid your so-called solution. Mm. We now have already tackled two general different aspects of debugging. One is the particular approach you have mentioned with the binary traces and the other one is the, let's say, the personal mindset who, of the one who is doing this kind of debugging. Let's first check out the first one here. Uh, you mentioned this kind of binary tracing. I remember there was an article in the Dr. Dobbs journal, someone in the 80s of the last century, where we have described something like on-the-fly capturing of data, which is encrypted or laid somewhere in a binary form. And afterwards, after the run, it's interpreted from the outside. So the memory is read out and it's interpreted from the outside and given in a plain text format that humans can read it. Can we imagine your approach in that way or is it something different? Uh, it is uh, very similar. Uh, my first uh, uh, problem, I was... Uh, uh, doing uh, uh, a, virtual, a virtualization implementation in the uh, late 70s. Uh, no, it was uh, early 80s when Intel came with the 386 EX yeah. processor. 80s, yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, uh, I was promised by a company that will I will not name, that I will get uh, uh, a possibility to capture traces in real time and so on. But it turned out that as soon as you turned on paging, which was necessary for virtualization, that the, the programs could not handle it and that the device didn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened next, that company said, okay, it was our fault. We will give you uh, a two-rack Uh, uh, a two-rack of uh, logic state analyzers where you can trace up to 128 million uh, events on the bus. Okay. Uh, doing that could not uh, kind of help me much because uh, you had to place the... Uh, Uh, the conditions to start triggering, to stop uh, uh, capturing, and so on and so on. And worse, every time you changed anything in the software, all these absolute addresses got wrong. Right. Uh, and uh, since it was a, a real-time system where it, you were interacting with uh, devices, with, uh, with other chips that are are influenced by the outside and you cannot uh, delay anything, it was very hard to interpret. And uh, I did it that way, but I uh, then started to think, how can I improve that process? And the first improvement was instead of, uh, uh, of capturing everything or placing uh, uh, conditions to trigger capture and so on, Uh, let's uh, do something in the code 
that the court says, okay, now it is interesting, stop capturing because we are in an error condition or in an interesting condition. And from then on, I started uh, implementing things that will make uh, such kind of trace capturing uh, possible. And uh, it comes down to uh, when you come into on a place in a code, you just uh, state that you have been there and you can add some values of some variables that could be interesting for you. That's there is no, uh, let's say, black magic. The point is that over time, uh, I have added functionalities to that that will make uh, the not only a printed trace where you can look at it, but you can that you can execute on your host environment on your host PC. Uh, for example, in uh, in Visual Studio 6.0, I could. Uh, run code that was running on a target in an interactive debug mode. Uh, you can also, because uh, people usually say, oh, binary, that's not humanly readable. A trace doesn't have to be humanly readable. A trace has to be, uh, has to allow you to get uh, the information out of your running system and doing it in a binary way makes it even easier because uh, one of the, uh, let's say, of the problems of textual logging, besides, uh, let's say, the, uh, the fact that it uh, takes too much time uh, and interacts with the system too much, is that uh, uh, people are not, uh, let's say, conscious enough that they should make sure that every print is unique. Yep. Mm. Very often you see error occurred, okay? And then you grab through the code and you see it. Uh, that message could have been printed from a uh, couple of hundreds of places. So you know nothing. Okay. It just says, okay, something went wrong. I knew that, otherwise I wouldn't have started logging. And by automating the things and doing it binary and giving it unique identifiers, you make sure that you will never end up in that situation. And for a computer program, it's, it doesn't make sense to first format it into a humanly readable something. And then when post-processing it to validate the hypothesis or whatever, uh, starting parsing it, to decode where it actually happens. You can skip that uh, uh, that and just say, okay, I work binary on the target. I take binary stuff to my host. And on host, I have an, uh, uh, an API that can say, okay, this happened and so on and so on. For example, the latest uh, addition is uh, very often when you are debugging, what you see is... Uh, what you want to see is how the hell did I get here? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, what that uh, uh, what is added is that you can uh, uh, say, okay, uh, I can reconstruct the most probable stack of how I got there, and you do that 
in two ways. First way is by positively saying, okay, I see, I see that I've went through that procedure with that variable having that value. So that if condition was true, so I went and so on and so on. Or by negatively saying, okay, this stack, this call tree or reverse call tree could not have been executed because if I, if that would have been executed, I should have seen that trace point in my trace that I don't see. Mm-hmm. Right. And by now, by combining both of them, very often you can say, okay, uh, it is, uh, it is, uh, about, uh, let's say five, ten possible, uh, ways that you have to investigate with your kind of human mind. Uh, you don't have to spend, uh, time to analyze, uh, hundreds of, uh, possibilities. You just take, uh, the ones that you are sure that, uh, from the information that you have captured, you know that, uh, these are the ones that are most probable. Yeah. Okay. It, now, in nowadays, let's say in even big projects, uh, we have the situation where it is not done that way, but it is not in that, let's say, smart or clever way, but it's more or less done in some brute force attack. So we, there is the approach to simply lock everything into a plain text format to the outside somewhere to a net device or whatever you want. So simply get it out of the running system, but in plain text, in human-readable form, and you have gigabyte of log files. And what I'm wondering is, why are the guys still working that way instead of you using some kind of more smart approach as you just mentioned? Do you have an idea? Uh, yes, I talk to many people. I try to convince everyone to do it my way. Uh, or the binary way. Uh, and the problem is that, uh, uh, nobody wants to invest in, uh, the necessary tooling to do it in a binary way. They say, oh, it's, it's just a small problem. What I'll do, I will just see if I get there at that place in code. I will just add a print. <laughs> that gives you a kind of, if you are lucky, It gives you uh, some visibility in, uh, let's say, in five minutes' work. Uh, however, if you make your job of uh, kind of debugging and fixing difficult problems that cannot be solved via prints, then you start investing in tools. And I've invested quite a lot, and I have... Uh, Uh, someone who, uh, who helps me actually with the kind of with the coding and so on, uh, quite a lot into that tool. Uh, and it is, uh, currently we are at the, uh, at the fourth, uh, generation. Uh, because I do it in an incremental way. The first thing was just see what happens, then add functionality that you do by hand. For example, And, oh, for example, uh, uh, in uh, check if automatically if you have been at the place in the code to reconstruct your stack, 
at every point where you come and you say, okay, how, what are the possible ways that I got into this situation? Ah, that one, okay. Yeah, because that takes a lot of time to, uh, to investigate by hand. The algorithm you follow is straightforward. It's a positive and negative elimination. As you mentioned, yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, a computer can do that much faster uh, than, uh, than a human, and a computer will make less mistakes. Uh, the last uh, things we are adding uh, now is uh, uh, support for uh, multi-core uh, processors to debug problems with them. Uh, without using spin locks uh, and so on, because the, the, may, the main point of that tracing that I use is that it is virtually non-intrusive. It will never take a semaphore. It will never take a spin lock. It will never disable interrupts. And if your kind of a, a trace is placing some uh, consecutive uh, bytes or words into your trace memory, it's not atomic, can be interrupted by an interrupt handler. Mm -hmm. uh, the unwinding of that situation happens post-factum on the host because on the host... You can detect that you have, for example, got into an interrupt handler. By uh, knowing that you got in an interrupt handler, you know that you interrupted someone, some other piece of code. So therefore, you can kind of virtually take out the interrupt handler and reconstruct it and say, okay, at this point in your source code, your sequential code was interrupted by this interrupt handler and I will show you what happened in the, in the sequential source, uh, in the sequential code and what happened in the interrupt handler code. Okay. It is, so it, it sounds like there is a two, or it's split it into two pieces. So on one side, we have the part on the running system, on the, on the item under test or the system under test, the embedded system. And on the other side, we have the host based part. Um, is, Both of them, is it? I, I'm just. It just pops up in my mind whether all these things are, um, let's say, transferable, or are they limited to that specific architecture of that specific embedded system? Uh, they are uh, perfectly transferable. Uh, the host part consists of, uh, let's say, uh, two major parts. The first part helps you to kind of uh, to uh, uh, instrument your code with, uh, with trace points. Uh, so currently, uh, we are using Eclipse as uh, EDA. Uh, so it gives you the possibility to add, uh, to just click and say, here, I would like to see these and these values. Uh, that's the, the preparation phase. Then you have the run phase. The run phase is uh, very portable. Actually, it's a set of, uh, of uh, C macros where you say, okay, uh, uh, to place something into, you decide if you want to place it in a circular buffer, in a, uh, in a semicircular buffer, in a, 
uh, in a circular buffer that is uh, flushed uh, while executing and so on. So you make these decisions, and for these, uh, they, are, they are just templates uh, that uh, uh, the, the macro invocation that you actually place into your code actually does for you, and that happens on the target. The thing that you have to do, the port uh, for each target, is how do I get my traces out of the target into the host environment? Because sometimes you say, okay, oh, I can do that uh, uh, via a USB device uh, that I can attach. I can do that via an UART. I can, uh, uh, I will let it on the target and I will collect it afterwards with uh, 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 SVD or GTAG based debugger. It's, uh, that part is different and has to be, let's say, customized for each platform. Although, uh, once you have done it for two platforms, the third one comes for almost free. And then the third part are the, uh, the post-factum analysis tools. That will, uh, one of them is just to, to print it. So that you can, as a human, say, okay, I have been at that line of code and I've seen, uh, I've traced there, uh, three variables called A, B, and C, and these are their values. You can have their, uh, if you want, if time is important, you can have uh, timestamps that you captured on target, uh, which is part of a trace point. You say, okay, I want this trace point to contain also the uh, the timestamp uh, when it hit. So this allows you to do uh, profiling. Uh, to measure time and you do that by, uh, you, that's platform dependent. You say, okay, on an arm, you usually take the cystic, uh, the cystic counter on, uh, on different platforms. You use different timers and you just, you say, okay, I will read a timer and I place that as a variable into the, uh, into a trace record. Uh, so that's the, uh, most of the magic happens after the trace has been, uh, has been collected. Uh, that happens on the host. Uh, another important point is, uh, I usually do, uh, what they call hit and run jobs. Uh, I come in to fix a problem and after I fix it all, uh, the printing information, all that I did, they only are interested, not what I printed. They're only interested in the solution of the problem. So uh, all information about uh, the traces are kept outside the source code. So it is uh, kept currently, we are using uh, XML format that says, okay, uh, where a trace point is placed, uh, what is the, uh, uh, the, the SHA code of the function? So if uh, anyone changes a function, uh, it will, uh, you, you will be able to reinsert the traces 
if the function hasn't changed, if the function has changed, you, you will have to do a kind of manual confirmation that it's okay there. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, you do, you place your, uh, your trace points and you can have different sets of, uh, trace points that you placed because you keep them in separate XML files. Just before compiling, you say, okay, now I want the tracing information from that XML or that combination of XMLs to instrument my code, and I will run that. And every trace has a kind of an indication what XML file, kind of top-level XML file was used to produce it. So after, let's say, uh, two years, they call you again, all the kind of, uh, uh, your, there is no trace of what you have traced before, but you can reintroduce your traces and you can still understand what, what went on, on the target. That's very exciting and very interesting to hear how this, uh, for me, it's simply the word of smart or clever approach in comparison to a pure force or brute force using a traditional logging approach. But that's that's one part, as we mentioned before. Let's face a little bit also, or let's tackle another aspect of debugging. Um, first of all, you have a lot of experience with debugging and introducing and fixing problems or fixing problem and introducing systems. Um, are there, from your perspective, any kind of typical bugs you have observed? Oh, uh, typical, usually people come to me when, uh, when it's kind of, uh, hopeless. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, typical things are, let's say, uh, interaction with, with hardware. Uh, they're not sure or, uh, or there is a problem with the hardware, with an FPGA that doesn't behave as, uh, as advertised uh, with some closed source software. For example, you have uh, in the, uh, on Ateros, uh, for example, you had the Mad Wifi, okay. which was yeah. open source. Yes. But there was a binary part in there from Ateros itself. And for the firmware directly, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what happens there is when things go wrong, uh, Try to f or find what went wrong there. Uh, also, uh, memory leaks uh, that uh, people experience memory leaks, and these kind of uh, they say, "Oh, we analyzed our code with all kind of uh, static uh, tool, uh, static code analysis tools," which I'm a big believer okay. of these kind of tools. That's the first thing that I do, uh, uh, and they find no problem. And uh, the, most of these, let's say, problems happen in exceptional cases. You don't get a memory leak when everything goes well according to the foreseen, let's say, path. You get into problems when you get via an exceptional path that uh, things don't uh, uh, clean up uh, nicely. So it's... Uh, uh, very close to hardware. It's a kind of long-term uh, uh, 
memory management, or uh, the longest problem that I worked on took me uh, six months to uh, to fix. And uh, I was then working for a company that makes uh, uh, XDSL uh, routers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem only occurred when we were uh, BitTorrenting or our uh, uh, customers were uh, BitTorrenting using Pirate Bay. Okay. Only then. Interesting. I'm sorry, I have to jump in here. During the recording, I've made a mistake or I have overseen that the storage card of the digital recorder runs full and therefore Perro's uh, statement was not completely recorded. And uh, we have lost something like two or three minutes of the whole recording and now I want to get the clue or I want to provide the clue, the missing information between his last statement and the next part. The story with the XDSL writer continued that way. Barrow detected that there are attacks from the outside to this DSL writer. And the attackers from the outside have evaluated or assumed that this XDSL router is an open WRT router. And we tried to insert or to inject malicious code into that router. Hereby, the open WRT router would simply accept or not accept this code and then continue, but the XDSL router under Barrow's investigation simply crashed. It lasted six weeks that long from Barrow's perspective because the XDSL router investigation have had to take place in China. In China, it looks like the using Pirate Bay is not under any kind of prosecution and therefore it was available or possible. But it was not possible for Barrow to do it because under Belgium, it's not allowed to use Pirate Bay. And he has sent his tracer to the guys in China and we made the data collection and then sent the binary traces again back to to Barrow and he made the investigation offline. After that story, we switched to the question, um, how is Barrow's self-understanding in his business and how is his relation to the customer? And now... Let's jump back into the original interview. So, and I always propose to my customers, I will do your problem solving on a base of a fixed price, no cure, no pay formula. That means we will agree that I will solve your problem within X weeks or months or whatever. And if I fail to fix it, you pay me nothing. Because I want to, to deliver a result, not a kind of uh, a time and material kind of effort to solve it. And uh, for my customers, it's uh, always, uh, they always uh, kind of start saying, oh, we don't work like that. Uh, we, we don't understand how it will work. I say, okay, is, your, is solving your problem worth that much money? And do you have, for example, six weeks' time? If yes, give me the opportunity and I will fix it for you. So in that way, 
by approaching a customer like that after the first uh, kind of uh, 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 bad reaction, they start to think uh, kind of in a more positive way. They say, okay, this guy we can trust because he will not charge me XK euro Mm -hmm. for working. He will only charge me if he fixes my problem. Okay, but that's it's that's the point of um, of your offer towards the customer and that they hire you and uh, do the uh, do the contract with you. But I observe that it's simply like uh, the guys are providing or they are estimating we will spend an effort of X for uh, pro, uh, for developing the software. And afterwards, we will um, we will spend. For example, we estimate we will have twenty percent of the overall effort to be spent for debugging and maintenance. And then finally, we found out it's not twenty percent; it's sixty percent. So it looks like for me that it's roughly underestimated all the time. Uh, yes, it is always underestimated because uh, when they start. Uh, let's say if they start a new development, then everything is, uh, everything seems bright. And the guy who wants to start a new development, he will try to convince his management. Yes, everything is fine. We will g- get this from open source. We will get that from there. And it is all, uh, all fine. Uh, there is a huge user base. It's all debugged. Everything works. Uh, And that's what uh, kind of uh, uh, higher management uh, takes into account. And for them, kind of debugging, but usually if everything is done correctly, then there is no need for debugging, but let's budget X percent. Uh, The facts of life are that no two products are the same. You are combining different components software and hardware components than your than the rest of the world because you want to be different you want to be better you want to uh, to em- put more emphasis on something else and then the interaction creates problems every standalone subsystem is usually okay the problems that most customers that I see have is, yes, yeah, but we use this uh, USB device or we use this uh, PCI Express device or whatever. Uh, and, and yes, we have found that driver and we installed it and it uh, it seems to work. Yes, it works until something unexpected happens and then it stops working. For example, if your uh, if your device is not able to flush its buffer in time, yeah, that's uh, that's bad luck. It will go through a part of code that has not been, let's say, tested in cooperation with your with the rest of the system's error recovery or problem recovery uh, parts. And there you see most problems, and these are very difficult to tackle. First, you go to the the guy that printed the message. For example, my PCI Express says, okay, uh, I'm stuck. Uh, you then go to the to that company and they say, oh, no problem. For us, everything works. 
prove me that it's my problem, then I will maybe help you if you promise to buy one million pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's a kind of that kind of uh, problems that mostly occur and that are uh, hard to hard to solve. And for them, for that kind of problems, usually uh, my most difficult point in kind of uh, making that uh, kind of arrangement with the customer is uh, to uh, to give him a, a good estimate of how much time it will cost. I can absorb, let's say, extra work. That's my problem. Okay. But if I fail to deliver to my customer in time that he needs his product, for me, that's, uh, that's a, let's say, a disaster. Yeah, I, I can assume, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and uh, so what I do, usually I take, I ask him, give me everything that you have. Yeah. I will investigate it. And uh, I usually spend uh, one or two or three weeks just to give a kind of a time estimate how much time I need to solve it. As you mentioned before, the, the typical skills for a successful debugger or bug hunter uh, as a, that the first was never give up, the second was will do it. So the, this, uh, this, this positive attitude, what else do you self have for yourself to sustain in exactly these situations you just mentioned? Uh, what, uh, 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 what, You need, you need a kind of a good reputation because uh, if you, if you fail, uh, it will be, let's say, uh, uh, taken into account. So, uh, I have uh, given up one project in my, uh, 20 plus years. And it was because I was not uh, kind of, uh, I come to the customer and say, okay, I have, I solved your problem. And they said, oh, oh, but it's, uh, we, we have already changed uh, uh, from board manufacturer. We have changed a lot of things. And uh, if you don't keep me informed, then I, uh, I cannot kind of cooperate. But uh, otherwise I, I always succeed because the point is, The can do comes from the fact that if you, if you can see what goes wrong, you can understand it. Mm. And by, uh, uh, by kind of, uh, by tracing the problem in a non-intrusive way, I can always see what goes wrong and I can solve it. Uh, because you mentioned also that people just add a, a print F or things like that. Yes. Uh, usually by doing that, I've seen a lot of uh, problems being kind of uh, fixed by just printing. Uh, you should imagine that uh, kind of doing a print F, hello, percent D, and one uh, 32-bit variable takes between 180 and 350,000 clock cycles on a normal processor. Mm. That's one thing. The next thing is you want to get it out when it, when you produced it. 
that means that you will start uh, uh, kind of uh, transmitting it onto a device. Doing so, you will change the behavior of not only that device, but of possibly other devices. I've once had the problem that uh, the guy said, ah, if I print 20 bytes, 20 blanks, the problem is gone. Yeah. <laughs> if I print less than 20, the problem is there. Yeah, it must be the number. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It turned out that uh, he had uh, a device with a UART FIFO of 16 bytes. Okay. And the driver then said, okay, oh, my FIFO is full. I have to enable interrupts so that when the 16 bytes are out, I can fill the next portion. So what happened is by, by printing a longer string, he caused the interrupts to get enabled. And by enabling the interrupt, the system appeared to work ma by magic. Okay. <laughs> The problem was not the kind of uh, solved by by printing. The problem was solved by enabling the interrupts. And uh, the interrupts are, what you have to do in this case is to find why are the interrupts disabled forever in this case. And then you have to go back to an error condition that, some, that happened somewhere on another device where you uh, disabled interrupts and counted on re-enabling them by exiting through the normal path and you exited to a different path. So your interrupt stayed disabled and your system stopped working. By adding 20-byte printing, you enable the interrupts as a side effect, so you solved your problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, these side effects, especially, yeah, very often observed the debug version of the program runs. So with all the symbols inside, unstripped and so on, uh, and then it runs. But if you make it as a release version, remove all the symbols, suddenly it does not run anymore. So it's simply more tighter connector. Uh, the initialization of the memory is not done and all that stuff. And that, um, that uh, makes the system much more weaker. So it, it points to, uh, a wrong implementation or a bad design at all. Uh, but Bero, as uh, you are already an old an old fellow in this whole area, but we also have newcomers in the audience. And um, that, what about what about the guys here inside? How what proposals do you have? What kind of I don't want to say tips and tricks, but it's something like uh, attitude or uh, some kind of habit. How, how could they do, what could they do to become good backhunters even if they are at the very beginning? Whew, it's a hard <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, in the embedded world, uh, that's where I like to operate. Uh, you have to read the manuals of the chips you are dealing with, with great care. In what manner? What do, what do you mean with great care? Oh, so uh, I don't. I don't want to say you have to read between the lines, but you have uh, uh, to read it from the perspective of the guy who wrote the document. 
For example, if you take a, a, an ARM implementation of a chip vendor that I don't want to mention, okay. <laughs> you will see, for example, that a certain register, they say, oh, actually this register that you see here are two registers located on the same address. Okay, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, that looks like a kind of uh, a minor detail. Mm. But the point is that what you uh, have to understand there is uh, you should not write the two parts of the registers or a mix of the two registers that are residing on the same address at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because if you do so, you will get unpredictable results. Yep. So, uh, you see, sometimes it's just a small detail that you say, oh, yes, I will just, I will not read the complete uh, register description. I will just look for the bit fields that interest me. Uh, sometimes you have side effects from others. Uh, and, uh, yeah, for the rest, uh, Get yourself what you are, what you always need is uh, uh, an appropriate oscilloscope uh, and a kind of uh, a mini logic state analyzer. Uh, uh, I use both uh, Salai and USB uh, because that's part of what you can observe with, that you cannot observe by looking at the software or by executing the software. Uh, if your, uh, let's say, SPI stops working, you will uh, you will see that by looking on the pins. Mm, yes. You will never see that by looking in the code. So uh, uh, get acquainted with this uh, kind of uh, uh, hardware debugging stuff. And... Uh, Yes, uh, and, and of course the never give up, never give yes. up uh, uh, attitude. Yeah, and, yes, uh, and also this kind of of positive thinking. So we have not looked yet deep enough. If we have not found it, then we have not mm -hmm. looked deep enough. Yeah? Yes, yeah, and uh, kind of and another important thing for the young guys is ask for help. If you don't understand something ask for help of one of your colleagues. Maybe he can, by explaining to someone, that's the tell it to your dog principle, you just by forcing yourself to explain it to someone who can pose critical questions can help you solve the issue. That's uh, uh, also something that uh, a young guy should learn. Usually they are very eager They want to prove themselves and asking for help, they see it as a weakness. It's not a weakness because the guy who, who you ask the question will also learn something from it. So it's a win-win. Ask your, uh, let's say, your colleagues, ask your older colleagues. And I, I always ask also my younger colleagues because it's uh, for me, it's a long time that I have, uh, uh, that I'm in the business. I learned quite a lot, but from, for some things, younger guys are better. And I ask them, please help me. 
Yeah. So don't don't be shy. Yeah. So yeah. anything like it's also no no kind of weakness if you don't mm. understand and if you have not yeah. seen it yet. So there are so yeah. many attitudes, so many aspects available. It's yeah. not possible for one person to have seen it all. Yeah. So, Bero, I think we have made here already a good summary of this whole story. And uh, it's also, for me, it's some kind of, of, of yeah, curiosity I already mentioned. So that the guys should should be a little bit also nosy about the things. yeah. And um, what I have also in mind all the time is some kind of, I, I name it the detective's mindset. So simply getting eager to find out. Not, not, not as you, as you mentioned, with you want to track it down to the very bottom of the of the root cause. It's you're not satisfied with curing a symptom, and that's something what I'm sometimes missing with with colleagues. So whether they are really satisfied with doing the first thing, that might be also caused due to time pressure or whatever. Uh, yes, and sometimes it's driven by the customer mm. because the customer says, "Oh yes." Uh, uh, the symptoms are gone. Yeah. I want to stop paying you. Okay. <laughs> yes. By offering a fixed price arrangement, uh, I get rid of that problem. I say, okay, it will do, I will fix. You have a fixed quick fix now. You can continue with your other work. I will continue uh, off-site uh, my investigations and I will come with a with a better fix later, and it will cost you nothing more. So that's uh, kind of uh, the advantage that I have uh, by working uh, on a fixed price basis. Because otherwise, the customer wants to stop his uh, cash drain. Yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. <laughs> that's that's sure for true. Okay, but. It sounds really. I think it's you are offering a real great product, even it even if it is yourself. Um, so for the customer, there is a great value behind, and I'm really I'm really thankful that we have had the opportunity to talk with each others here in this episode. And um, for the, uh, I want to thank you very much for staying here and um, having the pleasure to have the chat with you. Okay. It was also a pleasure to talk to you because I came to you because I read and listened to your podcasts, which I uh, value quite a lot. Okay, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so far, my interview with Bero Precalo. Bero, thank you again for taking your time and staying with me for this interview. And to you all outside on your smartphones, tablets, web apps, and wherever you're listening to this episode. You might have tons of questions about this chat and the details we have unveiled. Do not hesitate to raise your question using feedback at embeddedsuccess.com slash feedback or send me a message on Twitter at Georg Lora or LinkedIn. The show notes are available as regular at embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 19. Do not hesitate to share this episode with impressive Bero Brecalo to all your colleagues, buddies, and your followers. You can click on the like or share buttons to tweet or forward this story to your preferred channel. I would be very happy if you do that. This kind of forward announcing is the gasoline which drives me on. Thanks a lot already now. Now I've given you some of the know-how and some of the ways to gracefully handle your embedded systems projects. 
It's time for you to take these details into your daily work for achieving your passion and finding success. I'm Georg Lohrer from the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. Thank you for listening.